On August the 13th, 1991, a journalist called Ron Rosenbaum sits down to read his morning paper and he freezes at a headline. It reads, Writer probing Inslaw case found dead. Now, Rosenbaum is a relatively well-known uh, writer. He used to have a column in the New York Observer. He currently writes for Slate and he also believes that the entire um, Palestinian people are engaged in an ongoing project of ritual murder against uh, citizens of the state of Israel, against Jews. However, Rosenbaum at this time, 1991, he'd been on friendly terms with the dead writer in question. The dead writer's name was Danny Casolaro, and Danny had been chasing a wild story that he was convinced was going to make his career as an investigative journalist. Rosenbaum had been there to, you know, offer advice and the occasional reality check. So the wild story that Danny was chasing, as Ron Rosenbaum said, was, quote, enough to drive a sane man to madness. It revolved around this incredibly complex, protracted legal dispute between the US Department of Justice and a software firm called Inslaw. Inslaw was owned by an ex-NSA spook called Bill Hamilton. The firm had been hired by the DOJ to help um, develop and refine a software system called Promise. And when it came time for payment, Hamilton claimed the government stiffed him. Legal proceedings began in 1983 and they would last into the 1990s. Danny Casolaro heard about the case in early 1990 when he was casting about for a new story. And when Bill Hamilton gave him a 12-page summary of events stretching back to 1979, Danny realized that he might well have stumbled across a kind of unified field theory of American conspiracy. And thereafter, urged on by shady actors with inscrutable motives, Danny wound up submerging himself in an underworld of crooked politicians, right-wing spooks, LaRouche operatives, experimental weapons developers, money launderers, contract killers, and dope smugglers. He followed these threads that stretched from Promise and Inslaw to Iran-Contra, Watergate, the BCCI scandal, the October surprise, the Bush enterprise, and more. Danny's friends and potential editors, they were very skeptical of the more Outre claims in his notes, but they had to admit that he was on to something. The 1980s, don't forget, were a dirty time, even by the standards of American politics. Reagan had promised that it was morning again in America, but to a lot of journalists in DC, it always felt a little bit closer to 13 o'clock. Something shady had obviously gone down between Inslaw and the DOJ. Everyone agreed on that much. The problem was that Danny seemed to be in way over his head. Um, he was giving as much credence to the Area 51 and the Majestic 12 connections as he was to the more verifiable stuff around Iran-Contra and BCCI. His sleuthing was taking him in some psychedelically right-wing directions. His friends were convinced that he was being played by his sources. Danny was unrelenting because he was convinced that he'd uncovered a vast shadow network of power brokers. 
and he took to calling this network the octopus, the deep state of the deep state, a group of bankers, gangsters, and CIA old boys that had been secretly orchestrating global events since the end of World War II. On the 9th of August, 1991, Danny checked into a Sheraton hotel in Martinsburg, West Virginia, to meet his dynamite new source. This source, he told his friends, was going to supply him with documents and information that would finally expose the octopus. And his friends described him as stressed but excited to be wrapping up his story in the weeks leading up to his trip. He had, though, been receiving these very odd threatening phone calls at all hours of the night of the previous few months. His maid verified this as well, as did his brother. And the week before Danny left, he told his brother that if something happened to him in West Virginia, an accident or a mishap or anything like that, his brother was not to believe the authorities' version of events. So there are some witnesses who say that they saw him in a pizza hut in West Virginia on August the 9th quoting poetry to a waitress. Uh, he met an old friend who passed along some documents that might help him fill out his story a little more. He was seen in the hotel bar around 5 p.m. He was deep in conversation with an unidentified man who the hotel staff say might have been from the Middle East. He spent an hour in fairly pleasant conversation with the man in the hotel room next to his, and then nobody ever saw him alive again. The maid who discovered his body in room 517 the next day described a scene of almost unbelievable gore. Danny was sitting in the bathtub, dead, both arms slashed multiple times by a razor. Uh, in many cases with these slashes, the cuts had gone right down to the tendon. The cops who were the first on scene noted that the pools of blood on the bathroom floor appeared to have been smeared around in a half-assed attempt to clean the room. They found a pile of blood-soaked towels bunched up behind the tub. I read one account that says a shoelace was cinched tight around Danny's neck, but I've been unable to confirm that particular detail. There was a half-empty bottle of wine on the nightstand and a note on the little writing desk by the window, and it read, quote, To those I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. I know deep down inside that God will let me in. The cops said this was an open and shut suicide. Danny's family said this was bullshit. Um, he'd been a devout Catholic. He'd resolved never to kill himself after losing a sister to suicide back in the 60s. So they demanded a murder investigation. They wanted to know what had happened to the briefcase that he'd taken with him, the one that was stuffed with papers. They wanted to know who'd been making those phone calls and who this mysterious source might have been that he was planning to meet. There were even a few agents at the FBI who suspected foul play, but they later said it had been made clear to them that it would be bad for their careers if they pursued that line of inquiry. People hit the feds then with um, Freedom of Information Act requests for years, and the Bureau finally claimed that key files on the Casalaro case had been lost, that they couldn't locate the video reenactment of his death, that they could neither confirm nor deny if the Martinsburg police had withheld evidence or doctored witness testimony. 
Danny was a very popular guy and his funeral uh, was very well attended. Friends said that, you know, nobody was very surprised to see five blonde women who looked like they'd just stepped out of a, a Victoria's Secret catalogue weeping uncontrollably at his gravesite. But what did surprise everybody was the limo that pulled up outside the church. A man in a general's uniform stepped out accompanied by a second man in a plain two-piece suit. The man in the general's uniform approached Danny's coffin, laid a medal on top of it, saluted, and then left the church without saying a word to anyone. So this series is going to be about stories. Some of them are true, and some of them are fever dreams, spun by desperados and ex-spooks or geek burnouts for fun or profit or to try and save themselves. Some of these stories fall midway between truth and fantasy. All of them have something very important to tell us about a world of techno paranoia and information overload. This is the world of promise and it's the world that we live in today. Promise is the plot MacGuffin in all of this in a strange way. It's a piece of software that means everything and nothing to this story at the same time. Promise is going to be our route in. So in this first installment, we're going to focus primarily on what it was and what it did and discuss why it was worth stealing and why it was worth killing for because there are a trail of bodies connected to the tale of Promise, Inslaw and Danny Casalaro. So to really do this subject justice, we are going to have to do a lot of looping back and forth across time. So our narrative will begin in the late 60s, early 70s, and it will take us right up to September 10th, 2001. And joining me in this endeavor is my boy, the mysterious Mr. Ben Ghazi. We are now in the hunt, searching for the undying octopus. I had a dream about this place. I've been reading about the octopus on and off for really the past 20 years, the past 30 years. The story of Inslaw, the story of Danny, the story of Promise. Um, there's kind of a, uh, a sense of, of, you know, homecoming or, or childhood memories when I, when I go back and think about this stuff, because I remember reading about this on the internet in the 90s. Something that I've always been trying to answer that entire time or something that i always thought was more interesting in this tale than others is that 
you have these these people, places, times, dates, things, and they're all explained, more or less, or there are already journalistic treatments of them. For example, we already have journalistic treatments of Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell's father, that Maxwell, um, and he's involved in the promise story. But no one really talks about promise, the thing. What is it? What does it really do? You know, what does it mean to use it? You know, um, you know, how does it? What's its basic operation? How was it sold? Who did they? Who did they actually sell it to? As I thought about it, you know, again over the years, I kind of had to take it on faith or or inference. What promise did? I recall first discovering the story of. Promise and Inslaw and the Octopus and Danny Casolaro, uh, maybe a year or two after 9-11, and I was way, way too young to understand the names, the connections, the underlying politics of it all. So it took me a while, you know, to sort of rediscover it and familiar, familiarize myself with all the key players and, you know, all the cogs and whatnot. But even at the time I discovered it, I do remember it had this very sort of semi-mythic feel to it because for the size of the scandal, and everyone agrees now pretty much that it was a scandal. And in fact, you'll find a lot of mainstream media outlets that freely describe the story as dirtier than Watergate, you know, a high-tech Watergate. Um, I think because of the sheer complexity and scale of it, you know, if half the allegations are true, so many powerful people are on the hook, you know, and implicated here that it it boggles the mind. And I think it shakes a lot of people's faith in this system. But one thing that I've, I always struggled with was actually getting my head around what promise actually, you know, was. Because in a lot of sort of mainstream accounts, and this is not necessarily a criticism, but tech can be quite dry, you know, and it can be quite hard to get your head around. And so usually it's just described as um, tracking software that was stolen and it's left at that. But it's more than that, you know, it's more than just tracking software. And I hope what we're going to achieve as we go along through this series is explaining how Promise, you know, adapted and developed and evolved and hopefully illustrate that this story is um, why it's an onion. <laughs> you know, there are many layers to it. It's more than just stolen tracking software. Let's peel back that onion. Let's talk about how that is actually, that is central, I think, to the story of the octopus. You can't and understand, as, well, as much as anyone can understand, the octopus without understanding promise. You, you won't make sense of why uh, Danny Casolero ended up being suicided without having a, a conceptualization of the software that Inslaw designed and then had stolen from them. I mean, you've explained it to me before because I'm uh, very tech illiterate, mostly. Promise actually isn't anything 
especially sinister necessarily, like by itself, like the basic program is used in a lot of different industries even today. Is that right? So PROMISE is an acronym. It stands for Prosecutors Management Information System. Um, This is the, the full name of the computer application. It was released to the public in the mid 70s. Um, this is what was written by, or rather, this is the first version of, of the promise that ends up becoming famous later. But it started with this public domain software package. Promise was a, as much as I can judge, a term that existed before the software that we know of as Inslaw Promise was designed. I actually have a sound clip here from a um, ACM conference on the history of personal workstations. Now, this was held in 1986, so we're already a couple of years into the lawsuit between Inslaw and the Justice Department. Now, the guy speaking is called Jan Schultz, and he's given a talk about the history of the uh, family of Promise software, you know. And when he developed his version of Promise in the late 60s, he was focused on uh, data management and administration, and this was for hospitals. But he goes on to say that we realized very quickly there was a potential for Promise software far broader than medicine alone, which in hindsight, yeah, is very ominous, really. We're really looking at not automating offices, but looking at automating uh, companies. And in our case, the company was a hospital, but it was a large organization. And uh, we were trying to build tools that could match the variety of the organization uh, so that the, the tool had to have enough complexity in it to be able to control the organization, so it had to be able to maintain the variety uh, uh, of the organization within it. And so that dealt, that really uh, defined a fairly complex uh, sort of a computer system that had to be able to do that. We were interested in interaction and not programming for the users of our system. And Promise as a term still exists today. Um, If you go to Wikipedia, and you type in promise, you actually get um, a listing of different implementations of promise. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll read those out because it, it, it kind of shows uh, just how this is a, a thing that was already in other industries and stayed in industries. We have patient reported outcomes measurement information system, which is a program by the NIH. Um, Problem-Oriented Medical Information System um, that was developed by the University of Vermont. Police Real-Time Online Management Information System that was used by the Australian Federal Police. Program Resources and Outcome Management Information System um, that's used by the Head Start, the kindergarten people. When Inslaw sat down and said, we're going to release a piece of software, and name it Promise. They were making a statement to the information technology world at the time that this is a, an entry into you know, what is already a, a field of, of 
types of software. Then they're going to manage your information, whatever that information happens to be, you know, according to familiar guidelines. But again, INS Law, which itself stands for Institute for Law and Social Research, they were, as the name suggests, they were interested in law and social research. So naturally, the version of promise that they wrote was for the legal profession. Um, and explicitly in one aspect of the the legal profession, that of the, the the district attorney's offices. So, the prosecutor's management information system um, is, as the name suggests, on it is is a form of what is called case management software. So, if you can imagine that, uh, as someone moves through the judicial system. Um, that's the case. You know, someone commits a crime, the crime is investigated, it's brought or not brought to trial, so on and so forth. That case goes through a lot of different layers. Um, it involves a lot of different people. Um, in a way, it's, it's, it's its own little mini octopus. And Promise itself is was designed to, alle- I would say, alleviate or alleviate the burdens that began to stack up in the 70s. The district attorney's offices, um, they were covered up with cases. They didn't have enough resources. They weren't able to bring cases to trial in a fast enough fashion um, and, and would have to dismiss charges due to um, you know speedy trial requirements. They were just flat out overloaded. Inslaw wrote a series of 21 position papers um, or articles on promise and what the intentions were for the program and how it was going to be used and um, its its test markets. And one of the initial test markets was the Washington, D.C. Um, District Attorney's Office. So promise comes in and is able to make the prosecuting of those misdemeanor cases orders of magnitude more effective they're, that they're able to take the cases to trial and get an outcome of course they want is a guilty you know a, a, a guilty outcome again the, the the purpose of the DA's office here um, is to produce criminals the the efficiency is more important than any sort of notion of justice okay. yes yes exactly well, well, justice itself is about the process. It's not about the outcome. So Promise is brought in as a solution to this backlog of cases that's built up in the legal system, um, or at least it's been developed with that in mind, that it'll be very useful in kind of streamlining the administrative side of things. What we need to point out, though, is that at this point, um, as Inslaw are working on this version of Promise, this technically isn't the spooky Promise. This is kind of... Uh, to put it crudely, this is kind of like Promise version one, I suppose. It's an interesting bit of software, but it's certainly, it's it's not really anything that's going to grab any kind of deep state operator's attention or anything like that. Um, but it's a very effective kind of administrative tool, I, sh- I suppose would be the way to put it. Yes, yes, that is uh, that is quite true. And and again, this is a public domain piece of software that really ends law produced on contract. Um, from the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, the, the LEAA, 
which was a uh, a sub-department of the Justice Department that was spreading money around, trying to find good ways to bring computers to the justice system. Because again, we're talking about the, this is the early 1970s, and this is as the 70s are grinding on. So something important happens in kind of the life cycle of, of Inslaw. And had the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration continued as a, its own little sub-department, there really would never probably be an Inslaw case. Um, and, and Promise would have taken, I think, a very different direction. Um, but what happened is that the Justice Department shut down this, this department, this little sub-department, which meant that they were then no longer sending out grant money. And so Inslaw, um, which was founded as this nonprofit institute, uh, was faced with a scenario of, oh, wow, we're now just not a nonprofit, we're non-revenue. The, you know, the, 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 the jobs have dried up. Inslaw reorganizes as a for-profit institution. And they're with a goal of doing kind of what they did before, which was provide this software to DA's offices, um, and then provide all the follow-up services, all the training, all the manuals, all the customization, um, the, the service contracts, I guess you would say. Uh, but Inslaw recognized that to really be successful in this, they couldn't just be a a maintenance shop for a public domain piece of software. You know, this is something that it's in public domain. Anyone can can modify it, sell it, trade it, uh, barter it, whatever. You know, it, it is free to the public for public use. They realized that they needed something proprietary, something that was just theirs, something that would be special, but also, but not just appear to be special, but actually to be special. Because during the, the period of time when they were working for the um, uh, LEAA, you know, they are, they're gaining greater familiarity with the software as it's used in the field. So they're building up um, competencies and, and, and use cases. So they have a, an idea for a proprietary promise. And, and we'll call this promise two, you know, just to just to differentiate it from the old public domain promise. Promise two was supposedly around three million lines of COBOL code. COBOL is a is a programming language that is used almost uh, exclusively in these these large database administration. Um, operations. These three million lines of enhancements were things that were added onto the existing public domain software. These are intended to be, and and they and they sold them as these are proprietary enhancements. Inslaw owns the the all the intellectual property rights to these, and taking a piece of public domain software and bolting on a new uh, module to it or re-engineering it or rewriting it that is that's that's a common practice and that is a, that is entirely acceptable so the notion of inslaw taking this public domain thing and really turning it into something very new and very different 
that is that was entirely a a reasonable goal that they had. But again, they wanted to have something special um, because there were other people and other companies that were trying to do this same thing uh, of releasing this releasing software for uh, for the security services to manage their their law enforcement cases essentially yeah. um, one of the names of the other pieces of software that uh, will come up in you know around the discussion of promises is is a piece of software called da light delight yeah. uh, da light or Dalight is especially significant in this story because there was a guy called Lowell Jensen and he was the associate attorney general. Now, he heavily promoted uh, DA Light or Dalight to around 60 DA's offices and he promoted it as a far superior case management software to promise. Um, we're trying to avoid, again, getting into the weeds with names and connections in this first episode because promise is the star. But put a pin in um, DA Light and Lowell Jensen because they are going to be reappearing. So again, it was it was Inslaw was releasing this promise to to be a competitor to these existing options um, and hopefully to capture the entire market. Uh, Inslaw had predicted the market about three it was three billion dollars in revenue off of this market if they had achieved the penetration that they desired. And to get this much market share, they essentially they presented a piece of software that was a generational leap and a you know, like a new, it was an almost an entirely, you know, a new evolutionary branch. So what kind of stuff could this new version of Promise do that the uh, early version couldn't? I'm very glad you asked. Importantly, I, I want to bring up that, that already in the earlier version were a number of Really cool things, um, like again, uh, being able to track a case, really a person, as they move through the justice system. It had f- mechanisms within it to build um, forms, you know, like essentially like documents that you would use offline. You know, like uh, say a a police officer arrested someone, and they have to fill out certain arresting information. Promise had within it, you know even in this old version, mechanisms to create, um, you know, to, to create and enhance that process. Promise also had, at that time, uh, reporting functions that were focused internally, by which I mean that, that a, a user of Promise could look at how effective the justice system, the various levels of the justice system, were at producing a, a result down to levels of well we have a police officer how many of these police officers cases were they involved in how many actually get make it to court how many of these court cases uh, uh, come up with with guilty how many are dismissed whatever you know how many times has this witness been called and that that they've actually shown up um, yeah. you know uh, you know how effective are Different departments in in prosecuting, arresting, what have you, processing. So it was very much a a thing that you could use to make your district attorney's office so much more efficient. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of this is kind of a given now on like most modern, uh, even like just basic laptops and phones and stuff, this kind of organization. But for the time, it was quite pioneering, wasn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, there was really nothing else quite like it. And again, there was, this is, we've just talked about the stuff that was in the, in, in the pre-existing, you know, the promise basic. So Inslaw sits down and they do a number of things to make Promise 2.0. Um, number one is that they, they totally overhaul and, and the user interface system, you know, how you interact with the program. Um, again, we're in the early days of, of you know, user interface design. Um, and the earlier versions of Promise weren't all that easy to use, um, as with many mm -hmm. programs at the time. Uh, but they really fixed that up. Um, they added really detailed online help systems. So it wasn't like you get like an enormous 300-page manual, which you did get You did get those, but you didn't need to go looking through that if you had a question. You could just press a key on your keyboard and Promise would, by the context of where you would ask the question from, say, okay, you know, what do you need help on? And this is really important because one of the aspects of Promise that was sold to the, uh, as it was sold to the district attorney's offices, is that this is how you de-skill the almost the the, the pro this justice process. So, without Promise, you would need to have skilled, experienced, trained lawyers and 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 high level staffers that were digging through all this mass of documentation and putting it together just right so that it can go through the legal system. Because again, the legal system is, is, is it's about the process, not really the, yeah. the, the end goal. And there were a lot of places where you could get snagged up and fouled up, um, which would result in, again, cases you know, being dismissed or you not being able to, to bring all the charges that you wanted to bring or would have to bring lesser charges, whatever. So having this, this people with the skill and experience and ability, um, that's expensive. And so in the grand tradition of, I suppose, of capitalism, it's, okay, well, how can we use a machine to make a complex job less complex? In the briefing papers that Inslaw put together to market promise, they say that the software was a huge success in the DC prosecutor's office. And they go on to say, quote, Promise is synonymous with facts, over 170 of them for every single case. With access to these data, prosecutors in high-volume jurisdictions can achieve technologically the same detailed knowledge of their caseload and operational problems that small-town prosecutors acquire as a matter of course with regard to their relatively light workloads. Um, and then it goes on to list six major categories that Promise organizes all facts and bits of data into. So one, um, information about the accused or defendant. Remember, this is in context of legal cases and whatnot, but I want you to try and think about how else this could be used, you know. So one, information about the accused or defendant. Two, information about the crime. Three, information about the arrest. Four, information about criminal charges. Five, information about court events. Six, information about witnesses. 
So yeah, you can see how Promise is organizing this data, but it doesn't necessarily have to be used strictly for criminal cases, you know, and you can rotate and mix and match and create network maps for all kinds of different things by feeding the data into Promise. That is very, very useful. And I'll also just include this as well. Again, try and think of how this might be applied in different contexts outside the legal system. So, Promise tracks the court workload from the vantage point of the accused or defendant. This is achieved by incorporating in Promise the fingerprint-based number the police department assigns to the individual following his or her arrest. This identification number is used again by the department if the same individual is subsequently arrested. Through this number, prosecuting attorneys accumulate criminal history files on offenders and no incidents of recidivism. And then, finally, Promise tracks from the vantage point of the court proceedings. This is accomplished by including in Promise the docket number the court assigns to the case pending before it. With this number, prosecutors trace the history of any formal criminal action from arraignment through final disposition and sentencing and account for the separate fate of each count or charge. There's also the account of Michael Reconosciuto as well. Now, We'll be talking about him much, much more in episodes to come. Remember, this episode will focus purely on the software. But he said this about Promise. This package worked, okay? I mean, it really and truly worked. And when I got my first copies of it and ran it up, I was dumbfounded. And there was also Harry Martin of the Napa Valley Sentinel. Now, he was referring to an Israeli software package that he'd used, but it had Promise code in it and... He said this, it had the capability to deal with the complete military structure and who's who and what's what. I mean, it even got down to almost the number of shoelaces, how many handguns, how many bullets for those handguns, everything. It gets into numbers and details. And that's what this software has this tremendous power to do. To do this, you know, one of the ways that, that, that Promise adapted was, again, better user interface, better help system. Um, the entire code base itself was really overhauled and lots of bug fixes, quality of life improvements, optimizations. Again, the, the Inslaw had years of now experience with the software. And so they were able to rewrite um, large portions of it. Involved in this rewriting of the, of the code base was that there was a generational leap at this time in computing technology. Things went from what were called, you know, essentially 16-bit mini computers, 16-bit machines, to 32-bit. I guess to condense that down to a, you know, uh, an, an analogy, I guess we could actually point to, this was brought up in the, uh, um, the bankruptcy case, of imagine you have a jet-powered plane compared to a prop plane. So just, just, I mean, this is a colossal leap in computing power at reasonable prices. So you were able to get more bits than ever for less money than ever. And, and, and Promise had designed itself to take advantage both of all of this new processing uh, power and the fact that it was so cheap now. So that, you know, you didn't need to be this, uh, you know, have the resources of an, of an enormous consolidated metropolitan area to have a, a computer. 
um, you know, a mini computer was was small. You could almost fit them in a closet. The market conditions were just right for this sort of of modification, and for this, um, uh, I guess, for this for this software to really succeed. Um, something else that was that was done uh, was uh, they changed how you updated the the Promise software itself. Again, Promise operated on a database. You had to have information to put into Promise to to use the system. You know, it was yeah. it was the the information in a way had to had to precede the existence of the system. Um, yeah. And and when they did Promise 2.0, they rewrote how you were able to update that database so that you didn't need to add the updates manually one at a time. You could you could yeah. Produce a like a, a a tape that would update the entire database at once, which is a really important feature of having a, a you know, database that many other people use, or having a really a a, a production database. You know, not just something that just one person is screwing around with, but no, this is intended for a lot of people to use. Perhaps most importantly, most significantly. The thing that, that is talked about when people discuss the second version of Promise is Promise 2.0 had a user-friendly way of, and, and of taking arbitrary existing databases and pulling the parts of those out that you, the user, wanted. And then consolidating yeah. it all into a like a database of databases, a metadatabase. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think in the bankruptcy case, it brought up an example of um, you have a database of uh, Department of Motor Vehicles uh, vehicle registration, and the and in this database are are all sorts of information about how cars are registered. You're only interested in the zip codes in this database. Mm-hmm. Um, Promise would guide you into pulling this single column of information out and then incorporating it into you know, your, other wider, your other wider project. And also you could just as easily, you know, if it turned out that you, were, you weren't interested in zip codes, you were interested in car color, um, you could hide or remove the zip codes and, and forget about it. At all levels, at different agencies, you know, local, state, national, regional, whatever, you have databases. You have piles and piles of information. Um, and everyone is interested in, in things that are particular to them. You know, they've assembled this group of information, this uh, pile of data for their particular reasons. Promise was the pretty much the one thing on the market that could go and reach into any one of or all of those databases and take out what you wanted. I think this is probably where it's worth bringing in Bill and Nancy Hamilton, who were the founders of Inslaw, and pointing out that Bill Hamilton, prior to um, founding the company, he'd actually worked for the NSA as an analyst. So he will have been aware for years that there was an issue 
with uh, all these different federal agencies having databases of information that weren't in communication with each other, you know, the IRS, CIA, FBI, NSA, so on. None of them were linked up. There was very little joined up thinking going on. And now here he is, he's finally solved this problem. Um, but it seems like he didn't really realize just how uh, dangerously close he was coming to being in over his head at this point. Yes, yes. I, I would say that by the time um, Inns Law really has like the, the, the first working versions of Promise 2.0, which is happening about 1982, um, they, have, they have long since, uh, you know, leapt into the abyss. Yeah. They don't know it yet. Um, but they've attracted attention, and that's not a good thing. Another thing that I really liked was your explanation of the the contract that Inslaw developed with the Justice Department, um, because I'd never really heard it broken down in a way that I could get my head around before. I'm just wondering if you could just tell me a bit about that, really. Oh yeah, sure. The the well, again, this is the the tale of of promises, or rather, of Inslaw's bankruptcy and judicial involvement and. The, that that sordid history is is you know spans the decades, but it really things all kind of begin. It goes you know it goes many other places, but it all kind of originates um, in 1982. So again, LEAA had closed down. Um, Inslaw was designing, developing this new version of the software. They wanted to. They were going to be a private company and, 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 and sell the stuff to DA's offices. So they respond to a, a contract proposal from the Justice Department. And they hammer out a contract that is in total worth about $10 million. And, and what I mean in, in total is that there are bits and pieces, there are deliverables in this contract. And, and you get paid as you produce certain things according to the contract. Things went bad almost immediately. Um, in fact, thing, bad things predated the signing of this contract. Shortly before Inns Law signed this contract with the Justice Department, I say shortly, like the year or so before, they had already gone through a contract dispute with the Justice Department, where essentially the Justice Department screwed them out of $125,000. And... I think that that is really the the moment when when the beasts that's when they start to smell blood in the water. There is a sign of weakness, um, which essentially Inslaw mishandled this pre-existing contract and 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 ended up working for free. But that was all in the past. Now that wasn't they were focused on. They had this new. They had this new program that they were going to set, you know, release. And now they have a, um, they signed a $10 million deal with the justice department. Um, the justice department, you know, is re recognizes in this contract that the, the things that ins law are providing aren't given to the justice department. Like it's a public domain program. No, this is a proprietary piece of software that you are being allowed to use according to the terms of this agreement. Yeah, he's he's leasing 
his copyrighted modifications to the Justice Department, essentially. And I think the deal was to install it in uh, 42 offices of um, U.S. attorneys. Is that right? And yes, exactly. And the, the signs of problems were there immediately. The, the contract doesn't really properly define um, in, in, in achievable terms what is going to be installed where and who owns that thing that is going to be installed. Um, there's aspirational aspects in the contract. I think one of them is, is the, you see this brought up, is Inslaw, they, they were going to release a version of Promise for what, what were then called word processors. Um, a word processor is just an early computer, you know, an early general purpose computer that was just designed for, for word processing. At the time that Inslaw signed this and went into this, they were under the impression that, oh, geez, you know, there's just stuff in this contract. It's really just formality. Um, it's not actually part of the real deal. This thing is going to be subject to, you know, some revisions down the road. Um, because the, the, the ask for that, oh, you know, make this version of promise for these word processors, it was, it was um, absurd on the face of it. It's, it's yeah. you know, this is, this is a new version of software that you're asking to be engineered for the, the you know, an old version of, of hardware. It's just, it's not, it's not going to work. And from what I've read is that this, and there were other things like this of where Inslaw was led to believe that this was just, this really wasn't the point of, of the contract. The contract was, the point of the contract was to develop this software, get it up to a, you know, a point that the Justice Department liked it, and then blow it out onto all of these machines. I think what's fairly clever as well is this thing of, of them paying on um, achievement, you know, paying by objectives met. It meant then that Inslaw had to take out um, loans in order to keep itself uh, solvent which sets up uh, trouble further down the road, but we'll get to that. So as Inslaw is attempting to meet the terms of this contract, again, they're having to borrow money to pay for the computer time and the programming time um, to meet the deliverables. They then present to the Justice Department uh, you know, that they have met one of these milestones, and they ask for payment. And like the earlier contract that preceded this one, the Justice Department tries to screw them uh, essentially every step of the way. They, you know, they 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 dicker about the terms. They they don't pay. Um, they make absurd claims. So so something to understand here is that Inslaw gets this contract to over to to deliver certain things about an overhauled promise. 
the way that they choose to answer the the objectives in this in this contract is to supply portions of promise 2.0 so in a way the justice department isn't aware of promises 2.0's existence until the hamiltons begin to use promise 2.0 to satisfy this contract they have open with the justice department when the justice department sees that sees and experiences you know sees this other software and is able to use it um, they then begin to try and assert pr- their own proprietary claims to the software, mm-hmm. saying that, well, geez, because we paid you, um, you know, to, to, this was a contract software job, you know, you, you, you gave us this software to meet this objective. That means we own, we essentially have the, the intellectual property rights to this software you've given us. Um, which was again that was that was already decided in the beginning was that no the justice department didn't have this we'll get to um why the sharks are circling but from a uh, hamilton and his wife's point of view they'd already had a bad experience with justice before why did they why do we think they thought that it was going to be any different uh, second time around i have some some speculation on that and 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 some you know what i what i've gathered from the reading i've done Bill Hamilton is still alive, so theoretically, we could just call the guy up, you know, right now and ask him. Say, hey, what do you actually think? I don't think he'd be uh, up for that. He seems like a very grumpy guy when people bring up um, promise and the lawsuits. Oh my god, I bet. <laughs> um, so part of it is, I think you could you could say is number one is is that it's um, Bill Hamilton. He's this this is a a loss. This is a, a, a law nerd and and a computer nerd. That, that came out of a, of the '60s and '70s, you know, as as the '60s hippie generation melted down into the neoliberals and the Reaganites, um, yeah. he was he was right there. So he was still a hippie that wanted to make the world a better place. He was going to yeah. do it in a very liberal tradition of, oh, we're going to, you know, we have these these immense problems. The way that we deal with these immense problems is that we make the system more efficient yeah the worst kind of uh spook really um <laughs> an idealistic one yes yes <laughs> exactly yes yeah an idealistic spook who thinks that the problem is that the security services aren't good enough at the job they do yeah yeah again he is an idealist he is a dreamer he is trying to make the world a better place he has a mission that goes beyond in a way just making money or just selling a piece of software, or signing a contract. Um, again, you get, it, it was the, they should have known from the first screw job that there couldn't be any loose ends at all. He was a, a total insider prior to all of this happening. Um, and it seems like he thought he would be protected to some extent by the fact that he'd worked for the NSA, that he still played tennis and went to dinner parties with people who were enmeshed in that world still. Yeah, protected and protected by and rewarded by. Yeah. That that he was going to be seen, at, that again, he is bringing light to the darkness. You know, the district attorney for Washington, D.C. Is, 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 you know, is so depressed that they're having to dismiss simple possession and drunken public <laughs> cases, you know, that they can't send really the people at the bottom of the, of the, of the social heap 
to prison fast enough. Um, and, and, and here, Bill steps in with Promise 2.0, and with this, again, the, the, the light that banishes the darkness. So yeah. with that kind of almost you know, messianic worldview, it's, it's easy for some of these details to get left behind, you know, to, to get forgotten. But mm-hmm. it's ultimately on these details that the Justice Department, um, you know, they break, you know, Bill Hamilton and Inslaw are broken on the wheel. They are rogered by the Justice Department. Oh, totally. And it's kind of a, an irony of all of this and, and, and I guess of the reporting and about the, the, the discussion about Promise 2.0 and Inslaw and all this stuff is you often hear that, that the software was stolen from Inslaw, right? That, that's the, that, that is what is in the journalistic accounts. But in actually reading the court documents, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I've, I've read the court documents, and actually the arguments they make are relatively plain and, and straightforward, um, is that, no, the Justice Department didn't, didn't steal a thing. The way they did, they didn't need to steal it. As part of one of the later settlement terms, again, the, the uh, Inslaw is still doing work for the Justice Department, even though they're not being paid for it. Yeah. You know, um, and and they're being and they're and and uh, you know they they are getting the the you know the Justice Department is is the worst nightmare client story that that I think has ever existed as as part of a way to kind of get out of this out of this you know uh, deadlock. Inslaw finally says, "Okay, fine. We will give you a copy of not just the application. In other words, this is the thing that is." designed for a specific hardware um, configuration, a specific type of, almost like a specific brand of computer, is also to give the Justice Department the the source code. Um, So the source code is is your originating mass that you then use to convert into the the application that is installed on, on a piece of hardware. So anyone with the source code has total ability to make any modifications they want. They can, um, they can, com- they can compile or they can convert the source code into working on any other hardware. Um, they can expand or cripple. You know, they can you know enlarge or shrink. They can dice it up. Whatever. It, it's they have the. No, it's the it, it's the it's the holiest of holies. It's the. It's the thing on which all other, everything else depends, everything else relies. So we have in the the legal history that in 1983, Inslaw hands over to the Justice Department a complete copy, complete, of the promised two-point or source code. Jesus. So in a way, it's like, we talk about theft, it's like, no, there, there never, there was no, there wasn't any theft. The, the, the ha- Inslaw gave it to the Justice Department. Now the Justice Department extorted them to get this. The Justice Department was used bad faith. The Justice Department um, was they were they were they were bad and evil and wrong. Um, but as the later admissions, as like later arguments by the Justice Department in in the cases that they made were like. Well, show us what laws we broke. You know, 
yeah. even you know they they essentially they presented the argument that even if what Inslaw was alleging the Justice Department did that they stole this that they extorted this blah 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 that they had this this plan to 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 drive Inslaw into bankruptcy and steal the software all the stuff even if that every single word of that was true none of it's actually a crime the reason for why the Justice Department is doing this though goes beyond merely being impressed by promises. Um, administrative capabilities, the fact that it could, you know, order files by date and size and, and whatnot. There's something quite a lot deeper going on here. And it it uh, pertains to these modifications that Bill Hamilton uh, and Inslaw added to the software. And I suppose this is where we can have a bit of a look back now, however briefly or long we want to go, about what has been building for years before this, basically. Um, because what promise, uh, what I'll call it spooky promise, what spooky promise could do was basically bring a level of efficiency to the work of surveillance and intelligence gathering that had never really been seen before. There'd been plenty of attempts at it. Promise seems to have kind of finally broken through the the glass ceiling, so to speak, and synthesized a number of different efforts that have been going on for decades up to this point. And here they had um, the perfect spy. Yes, yes. And there's the you know, and and there's some parts in there. If we can, I I want I want to talk some more about definitely about the perfect spy. But first, let's if we can just just kind of give a little bit more background. So you have spooky promise, right? The Justice Department becomes aware that it exists in 1982 or 1983, what have you. It's not like they, and which I mean the the criminals and bureaucrats and and, and careerists who eventually are are the ones behind extorting Inslaw. It's not like they are looking at promise and, and them seeing something they have never seen before. Or that this is a that they are having to come up with, um, you know, well, geez, how can we use this this thing now that we know it exists? No, you can go back to really the 1890s. Um, that's when IBM uh, really was founded to computerize census records, and you know, you can. And then going forward, um, is that once that kind of that computer revolution was started. It was the the state establishment then began to pay very, very, very close attention to what these new, originally electromechanical, later digital computers could do for them in the way of managing, in a way, managing populations, which is through the means of you have all this information, you have all this data. How do we organize it? How do we synthesize it? How do we derive meaning from things that we've just collected? And yeah. and, and this really ties into, again, the, the, the perfect spy, uh, which is this concept of imagine, you know, think of a, a spy who, are, who is a spy is invariably the worst type of person to have ever existed. Total piece of shit, yeah. Total piece of shit. They 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 live a double life. They, you know, their their tools are lying and fraud and theft and forgery and all of these bad things. So yeah. spies are bad people. World history 
is full of spies being bad people. Everyone knows that they're bad people. But we have to use them just because what they can do is so powerful. And so there is always a pushback of, well, how do we control the spy? How do we, how do we control a, a, simply like a pathological liar? Um, yeah. How do we get consistency and results out of something that is, you know, deeply inconsistent, which is uh, an ordinarily, you know, a human being, yeah. you know, an agent. Mm-hmm. And people have been trying to make that more reliable again since the um, the invention of spying. Something yeah. that kind of developed as technology improved was that well, geez, you know, we can we can get rid of this spy sort of thing. We can turn this into a question of analysis, which is we've gathered up all of this data. We then run it through this, this program, which, which, you know, sorts it, which sorts and, and purifies the data according to, you know, to certain metrics we set. And then we have this, uh, we have this report and then we can act upon the report. And so this is, again, what, what, you know, it was, it was, we had imperfect spies who were human beings who may be liars. Now we've gone to a pure, this is, um, again, this is really, this is, this is, is like uh, techno-futurists huffing their own farts of that. We have gathered up this, uh, this massive data and that we can then make we can then predict the future based upon. Yeah, I mean, this is very much of a pace with what you were saying earlier about this uh, ongoing sort of change um, that was happening on a broader level. So I think we mentioned it in the fifth casino episode, but um, Stanfield Turner at the CIA was a huge um, champion of uh, analysis and data gathering rather than using actual you know, guys on the ground um, working undercover or infiltration, stuff like that. It was part of a broader um, sentiment that was shared um, amongst the intelligence community that computers and data collection and covert surveillance were going to be the way forward rather than, you know, hands-on spy work. Yes, exactly. And again, it, it turns something that is flawed and, and, and difficult into a question of analysis. How do we get better at, at sitting around a desk with these big stacks of papers and reading them and then, and then coming up with, with an outcome? We don't have to deal then with spies. So we could, yeah. you know, this is the, and so this is, again, the perfect spy. It also, just to pick up on something else you said as well about um, population management, um, that's another uh, kind of vexing issue that has haunted the security state for ever since such a thing has existed um how do we manage the mass of people how do we know what they're thinking how do we know if they're planning insurrections or revolutions after world war ii it all really has been put in stark relief just what you can use computers for because of course there's ibm and their role in the holocaust in uh managing a population of people and and diverting and channeling that population into a yeah, death camps. The the state looked at the the ways that oppression were made so so much more efficient 
and said, wow, this is great. I don't have the exact figures um, here, but basically, if you want to look this up, listener, everywhere an IBM tabulation machine was used by the Nazis in World War II, the number of um, Jews uh, being rounded up and sent to concentration camps, it rockets out of sight compared to places where there were no IBM machines. Um, And that fact will not have gone unnoticed by the kinds of people who are thinking about how to incorporate uh, computers into the business of surveillance and, and spying after the war has ended. Yes, yes, exactly. And 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 in that tradition, again, promise is just is is an entry into that now you know decades long of history. You know, it's again, it is the next generational leap. It's the next tool for for population management for. Yeah. you know for tracking people and and also for for telling you what you should do yeah. and i don't think i think that 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 can't be understated just uh what a, a you know a powerful aspect and really what the reason why all these district attorneys offices then could you know wanted this this software um is because once you had all the information on your population in place, um, in in promise. Once it had digested everything, you could then, according to to certain parameters, you know, again, promise would would tell you what the hot spots and cold spots were. Promise would tell you how to go about at a lower skill level um, solving this really bureaucratic administrative problem and conundrum. In, the, in its role as now this, um, really this perfect spy program, this, this inhuman machine, um, how it could do essentially counterintelligence for you. Promise has a number of uh, antecedents. So we've already mentioned like IBM and whatnot, but then we also have Big Mac special collection program uh, that was used in the Phoenix program. Hamilton's brother, I believe, had actually worked on that program. He was so knocked out by Big Mac that he helped install the National Police Evaluation System um, on a lot of domestic law enforcement computer systems. You also had Hydra, which I think we've discussed before on the show. That was a a joint CIA-FBI database, and that compiled information about subversives, and it tried to predict where unrest and, you know, radical political activity uh, was going to be most intense during the 1960s and the early 70s. Um, And yeah, Phoenix and what was going on domestically kind of very much one informed the other. And it was all part of this counterintelligence, uh, the search for like perfect counterintelligence, which is basically a scam, I suppose. But there's a lot of money at stake. And so the race had been on for years at this point to develop like a perfect computer program. And um, just because I've been determined to mention this, <laughs> there was also the, uh, the Simulmatics Corporation, which has been called a, a kind of forerunner of Cambridge Analytica. The company aimed to create uh, simulations of human behavior based on uh, data collection and automated analysis that would predict everything, you know, from uh, consumer choices to how people were going to vote in elections to um, to counterinsurgency in Vietnam. They got invited to take part in the Phoenix program as well. So, yeah, this this has all been bubbling away for years at this point. Promise kind of arrives as um, a 
a summation of all those previous attempts. I'm not saying that, that, that Bill Hamilton deliberately designed it to be like that, but if you are a spook and you're floating around in the early 80s and you get word of promise, you are going to find it interesting. Exactly. There's, there's great expectations here. Um, and again, we, we, I'd mentioned earlier that there's, that there's blood in the water with, with Inslaw not being able really to protect themselves or negotiate. And now we've reached a point where you add now they have something of value. So one of the things that is brought up, and it's really, it's a question worth wondering is that, you know, really it's like, why did the justice department spend all this time and effort to do all this? Why not just cut Inslaw a check? Why not just pay him, get a copy of the program? Bring him into the fold. I mean, considering that he is ex-NSA, you would have thought that was a logical step, really. Yes, and 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 Inslaw tried and tried again to, you know, to placate the Justice Department and to be the good uh, contractor, and they made concessions they didn't need to make. Um, which then again, every concession Inslaw made to the Justice Department essentially was taken. By the Justice Department was saying, "Well, gee, see, you're you're admitting you're wrong. You're making concessions, so therefore, we you need to make more concessions." And the the I guess the the question of, "Well, geez, why then why then rip off Inslaw and and why leave all of these? Why make this a problem for yourself?" Mm-hmm. And I think there's there actually there there are a couple of answers there. Um, number one is that you. No one ever made a fortune by giving other people money. People who are in positions of authority and control at the Justice Department and related organizations see a way of getting something of, of essentially of, of getting acts, getting a copy of something of great value, mm-hmm. um, and they can do that for free. And and as we'll see later on, it's it's that people who are involved on the Justice Department side with this contract end up then going out into the world and selling promise on like it's their own. Um, because in a way they can, they have the source code. I mean, once the source code was given away, that is that was everything. That was that was the headshot. You know, the the Inslaw would would always be playing catch up at that point. Yeah. So, again, if your if your goal is to go out there with the software and make a lot of money, then the way one of the ways you do that is by not paying the people who invented the software. Cut them right out. Um, yeah. Also, as we will see, is is that again, Inslaw had an idea of how the software was going to be used, um, and and had a mission statement. They had goals. I think we would say it was easier for the people who who then went and propagated Promise out. Um, it was easier for them that if you just cut Inslaw out of the out of the picture, it was just it was one less one less person you had to disclose something to. And the way that they then tried to silence Inslaw, because again now you have an okay, well have you just traded one problem for another? Now I have the, the, the original author of this who's going around making a lot of noise filing lawsuits. 
And that was the purpose of the bankruptcy, of the Justice Department trying to force Inns Law into bankruptcy so that then they would then scatter this company to the winds. They would then have the copy of the source code, and then they could, you know, you know, go off the races. That didn't exactly, end, you know, end up working out to the Justice Department's, um, you know, plans. Um, Inslaw ended up sticking around and making a lot of noise, but ultimately they weren't able to do anything because they had lost. They had already lost. They had already lost it all. Yeah. One major, major reason why they didn't want to include Hamilton and Inslaw in what was going on, the plans they had for it anyway, is this issue of the the trapdoor that they installed in the versions of Promise that they were selling around the world. Now, we'll we'll be getting deeper into who they were exactly as this series goes along. But the key claim, what makes this, I suppose, more than just um, a run-of-the-mill case of theft and fraud is the fact that supposedly Promise was stolen by... Um, what we might call emissaries of the beast, <laughs> emissaries of the octopus. And it was sold and seeded all over the world to foreign governments with a trapdoor installed on it, which meant that when it was being sold to, say, the Jordanian government or the Canadian government or the British government or the the, uh, the USSR even at one point, it had um, a backdoor in it, which meant that the the US intelligence community and rogue actors who had access to the software could spy on what was going on um, with these different governments anytime it liked. And they were also selling uh, copies of this backdoored promise to uh, financial institutions as well. Uh, places like Deutsche Bank and mentioned uh, Bank of America, BCCI, lots of the, the spookier sort of uh, institutions. They also bought backdoored versions of Promise and the the intelligence community was using this to um, follow money around the world. By the way, this is not without precedent. In fact, you have an anticipation of the Promise story uh, when you look at the case of Crypto AG. And this was a company from Switzerland that created uh, cryptography machines, you know, and it turned out that after World War II, um, the CIA and West Germany's intelligence agency, you know, the Gehrlein organization basically, um, had been secretly, had secretly purchased Crypto AG. I think they bought it for about $6 million. And they set up something called Operation Rubicon. And as part of this, they were um, flogging these crypto AG encryption machines and, you know, cipher machines around the world. And what they weren't telling people is that these machines had already been broken and the CIA and West German intelligence could read everything that was being put into them, which is essentially um, the key contention of the entire promise story, the Inslaw affair. That is the central uh, plank. That's what makes it more than just a, you know, your average government bureaucratic nightmare. Yes, exactly. All of the stuff of, of the theft, the making money, all that stuff orbited a, a central goal. And that was to gain intelligence on others. So really, it was, it was, this was a, it was, it was a spy plot. You have this 
this analytical tool that is then going to be deployed to surreptitiously provide information to its controllers. Yeah. But the question is, well, what information? How is, this how is this stuff going to be accessed? From looking at that, from considering that, um, I think you know, gain, in, to gain some additional insight, it, it's you consider that again the the strength of promise wasn't in any one or more or even all of the databases that it individually had access to. Because in a way, it, it, it's one of the, one of the things that made this system so successful is that you took existing information that, in some cases, could be totally innocuous. Um, you know, vehicle registration, library books people have checked out, bank records, um, criminal history, education history, blah blah blah. You then gather all of that up, and then you then you know you look for trends and 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 search within all these pieces of information. So it's really it's it's the individual databases themselves. I, I see that as as that's that's a small take in a way. It, it, it's it's almost it's who cares? Even if you did come up with a wow, I've, I've I have a list of you know all you know the of all of the you know the, the pay records for the people that were in you know, the secret police. But ultimately, it's like well, okay, what do you do? what do you then propose to do with that? Yeah. Um, and so that's, I don't see promise as an espionage tool as, as that, as, as, as it being strictly, how do we get access to their databases? No, there's something much more clever going on there. So when you use promise, right, when you use any search engine, you have to realize you are, by the process of you asking and getting asking questions getting answers tells as much about you yourself that you learn in information so yeah. what i mean by that is okay say you have uh, you've set up a friendly government with a copy of promise you've trained them on to how that you can load in any database you want and 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 select all the fields you want and that you can then, because again, promises is online. It's it's real time. You can access it. It's friendly. You can then begin to really kind of just roll around in all this possibility. Effectively, it's it's kind of um, the way that Google will build up a, an impression of you as a consumer based on what you search for, what you shop for, um, and will supply you with like ads and stuff like that. You know, based on what you've been looking at on the internet. Absolutely. And so I think what was being, or at least this is something we can talk about much later about the, you know, what promise meant to different people. But I think at the core of it, what promise was actually harvesting was the information on how it was being used. So sort of nail down what were rival governments and uh, enemy states? What are, what are they concerned with? Like, what are they looking into? What do they know? You can get a picture of not just what's important, um, but also, what are the gaps, or, or you know, what are the weaknesses and strengths of the person who is using the tool? Again, to use to go from from you know Google, you know you know, you know Google search, you you search for blue jackets. You know, mm -hmm. it's like well, 
why didn't they search just for jackets or black jackets? Yeah. You know, and then and, and and then out of that, coming up with other possibilities. Um, and again, these are things that would never normally be communicated back to, um, you know, I suppose the the host nation, you know, the, the, the people that are installing the software, this is, this is, this is, this, this, uh, activity data, um, is so valuable because it's, it, it is, it's real and it's gathered surreptitiously. And yeah. the person that is using the software isn't thinking that they are sending back as much information about themselves that they are then actually pulling out of these databases. Say that you have, and we've talked about, okay, you know, does Promise give you access to you know, the databases? Well, it's, it's probably, you know, you could say it's, again, even if you had all those in front of you, it's how would you know what in there is important? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess a way that Promise answers that, that program is, that question is, well, we give it to the people who, who are able to answer that question. And even though they wouldn't, they wouldn't normally tell us the answer, but because we're essentially looking over their shoulder as they're typing into the system the things that are important, it's we then can learn that. So in a way, the, the origin databases, are, are they, they, they don't matter. It's really kind of extremely meta, isn't it? They're getting people to use Promise so that they can then harvest that information um, and to discover how they are using Promise. It's very circular and very, very clever at the same time. Yeah, very, yeah, very reinforcing. And again, this this leads back into you know, why, you know, you'd think, well, geez, why Promise and why, why not some other software that was out there? Well, again, there were things that Promise did very well, very innovatively, and, and were very, very useful for this goal of kind of like, of, of again, spying on, the, spying on the spies, or this meta-spy, of, again, you could use Promise to re-engineer your workflows for all levels of, of you know, your, essentially your counterintelligence um, programs, or your, 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 data, your data analysis programs or how that information was gathered to make greater use of promise and to gain those greater efficiencies, well, all you're doing is, is you are further exposing more and more and more information to the people who have access to this trapdoor. Yeah. So, I mean, to give uh, the listener an idea of what the implications of this are, I mean, we mentioned Google before. If you think about this kind of like... Um, Google for spooks, but at the same time, um, you have the access that Google has to what's going on behind all the search terms. You know, you can kind of see every other thing that they're connected to, what they're up to, who they're speaking with and whatnot. Um, so this is a, a, I'll read a brief quote. This is from a guy called James Norman. Uh, he was, he used to be the senior editor of Forbes magazine. This is an interview that he was doing with a guy called Jim Quinn um, on WRRK pittsburgh uh radio station i presume quinn and him are talking about danny Casalaro and the inslaw affair and the spread of the proliferation of this bugged promise software around the world norman says this which is very interesting let's start with the early 80s when bill casey came into the office in the cia under ronald reagan that's when our government decided to embark on this amazing and extremely unbelievably successful effort to spy on the world's banks we did it 
We have been spying on world banking transactions for more than a dozen years now using the bug software, by which it means promise, um, and bud computers that let our NSA, um, which is the global intelligence arm of the government, basically surveil wire transfers all over the globe. So if you have that level of access um, to a bank and its clients and customers, you can figure out so much based on where they're sending money, who they're sending money to, what they're prioritizing uh, with their transactions and their investments. It basically gives you an incredible uh, kind of three-dimensional look into um, an individual's life, or you can scale it right up to um, a corporation or even a nation state's sort of uh, plans and priorities and concerns, you know? Yes, yes, uh, uh, you know, absolutely. And again, you know, part of Promise's strengths um, particularly in, in the version that was designed by, you know, that, that was developed by by Inslaw, was that it was intended to uh, have applications in fields outside of the district attorney's office. You know yeah. that you know they had really they had intended for it to be used by banks and by prison systems and by um, anyone essentially that had a whole bunch of information that they needed to to move around and track and do things with we will be getting into some of the more i would say outlandish claims about i mean i think all of that is impressive enough to be honest but you do find there's quite a few um well there's various claims that get made about what promise was eventually adapted into being capable of as the years rolled on so i suppose at the more conservative end you have like what we've talked about which is this not very conservative at all, really. This incredible ability to harvest data from any number of different databases around the world, different institutions. At the extreme end, you have um, claims that, you know, uh, the Israelis added like an, an artificial intelligence mod to it so that um, they could remotely turn on and turn off gas supplies to uh, Palestinian houses. Um, which I'm, you know, I know there are programs that are capable of doing that. I'm just saying promise specifically. Um, but I've even seen like the more sort of fringier elements of the 9-11 truther community say that a version of promise was used to, um, hijack the airliners and crush them, uh, remotely into the, the world trade center. So I guess what we'll be concerned with more and more as this series goes along is sort of thinking about these these bigger uh, claims that have been made about it. So I just want to find, I guess, at the outset here, uh, first part of the series, what's your, do you have a take on that? Do you, do you think anything is more likely than anything else? I think, you know, uh, almost you have to consider the, each of the little stories, uh, you know, to go back and look at those and say, okay, what exactly are they claiming? Um, and, and, and you kind of have to do a degree of interpretation and realizing that, okay, so you have someone is, is telling this story and they are, they are compressing or expanding certain sections or they're, you know, they are, uh, 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 you know, jumping over others. Um, so the, 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 the actual what Promise did in the context of the scenario might not, might not actually make it through to the, you know, yeah. to the normal account. Um, and, you know, again, something that, that we have, we have on our, on our plate for, for, for the future is now that we've kind of discussed 
what promise can actually do, what it is in its context of, of the security state, our, our estimations of the, the spies who, who sent it out there, what they wanted, of can we then use those to really, can we make sense of all the stories? Now that we, now that we have a better understanding of promise, now can we, you know, do we have a, now do we have a better understanding of the octopus? Do you know what was so strange then when you said octopus, it kind of did that the thing that the, the, the Colonel's voice does in Metal Gear Solid 2 when it goes brrr, like that. <laughs> it freaked me out a little bit. Um, yeah, I think, I think that um, certainly we'll kind of be testing some of the, the bolder claims about its capabilities like as we go along. I would say at the outset, I definitely think it's important to remember that if Promise was adapted in the right ways and enough adaptations were made to it, you know, through the late 80s into the 90s, effectively you would end up at a point where it's not really Promise anymore. It's become its own thing, you know. Um, the book that I told you about, uh, Secret Government, they claim towards the end of that book that um, the NSA now use Promise software on some of their satellites, um, which, I mean, there's a statement so vague that it could basically mean anything, really. So it's almost, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a ship of Theseus question. Could you uh, explain that for listeners who uh, don't know what that is? I definitely know what that is, by the way. Ship of Theseus, it's, it's, I guess it's a, it's a paradox of um, Theseus has a ship. Uh, he, sets sail, he sets sail. On the course of his journey, he replaces the sails, he replaces the rigging, he replaces the planking, you know, puts, gets a new anchor on it, so on and so forth. So then at the end of the journey, journey, is Theseus's ship still the same thing that it was when he started the journey? Well, there you have it friends that was chapter one of the octopus i hope you have a better idea of what promise was what it is in fact and with that in mind we can now use promise as almost like the mystery bus in scooby-doo we can drive it from here to there and just follow it around the world through time and space and find out how it was used who used it who sold it and who bought it Next episode, we are going to be going deep on the life and times of Danny Casolaro. He is basically the inspiration for this entire series. This series is effectively dedicated to him. So it feels right that he should get his own full-length episode. And yeah, hope you can join us for that. Urge on friends and loved ones if you haven't already. Leave a rating and review on iTunes. Helps us boost the show, keep our numbers up. And so why not sub and show some love on Patreon as well? As ever, mark the exits, check the sightlines, and don't get captured. 
Thanks a lot, friends.